Good morning, everyone. If you would begin making your way to your seats, we're going to get this party started. As always, I want us to start with the word this morning and uh, to set the tone, I think, for the day. Um, recently, I, I led a, a breakout session on disciple making from the Old Testament. And as part of uh, my study, I tried to find what I thought was the prototype uh, of disciple making in the Bible from the Old Testament. And I settled on Genesis 18, 19. I want you to hear this because I think it's very relevant for us today. This is God talking to Abraham. For I have chosen him, Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. I think that is the heartbeat of disciple making, isn't it? That this gospel that has been trusted us, we entrust to others that they might entrust to other faithful men. And from the beginning, the primary arena of that disciple making has been the home. That that is the place where we first entrust the gospel to the faithful that they might entrust to the next generation. And so this morning what we're going to be hearing, we're going to be hearing from uh, Dr. Timothy Paul Jones. And he's going to be sharing and showing us how these gaps, these two uh, concepts are bridged together. You know that we are a disciple-making church and you know that we are a family's church. And these two, these two uh, distinctives coincide with one another. So I want to give you a quick introduction uh, to Dr. Jones. So preeminently, preeminently, he is the, do- the wife. You are not the wife. He is not the wife. He is the husband of one wife. He is married to Rayanne. He is the dad to four daughters, Hannah, Skylar, Kylan, and Katricia. He is, in his spare time, the vice president for doctoral stu- studies at uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is my seminary, uh, you know, so blame him, right? He's, all, he's, got, he's the reason I am the way I am, I guess. He is the chair of the Department of Apologetics and Ethics and Philosophy. He is the C. Edwin Geens Professor of Christian Family Ministry. He's a prolific author, a lecturer. He is a pastor at Sojourn Midturn, Mid, uh, Midtown. And my first interaction with Dr. Jones, I was in a lecture. I'll tell you, I had a, a bit of a, a break in my seminary education because of some health concerns. But uh, Dr. Uh, Randy Stinson had a discipleship and family make, uh, ministry class, and you gave a lecture on family ministry. And so much, brothers and sisters, of the uh, milestones and the family-making strategy that we have originated from that lecture, Dr. Jones. And then I think last year I had Dr. Jones as an apologetics professor, and that's really his main wheelhouse these days. And so I think what he's going to do really well is show us how the defense of the faith and the disciple-making that takes place in the home come together uh, to be able to equip the next generation to thrive and to flourish, and for you to thrive and to flourish as mom, dad, and grandmom, and granddad. So why don't I pray for us, and then Dr. Jones is going to come, uh, and he's going to kick off our first session. Heavenly Father, we are thankful uh, for the families that you've given us. We are thankful for the opportunities of the gospel that you've given to us. We're thankful for the deposit that has been given to us of the gospel. This morning, I pray that, Lord, what takes place through Dr. Jones, what takes place through the singing of your word, through the prayer, through the gathering of your people, would be the advancement of that mission, the advancement of being able to make an investment in the next generation. And I pray, Father, that we would be those who are found faithful of taking the gospel torch and passing it forward. I pray, Father, those families that perhaps have anxiety 
when it comes to the deconstruction movement and the evangelical movement and the families that have anxiety of, of raising their children or seeing their grandchildren be raised in a generation that seems as corrupt as ours, that, Lord, you would use Dr. Jones this morning to bring peace and confidence in the hope of the gospel to strengthen those families. Lord, I pray that this time is profitable. I pray that it is edifying for your church. I pray that you would fill Dr. Jones with your spirit, that you would fill your people here with your spirit, and that we would make an immediate bond for the sake of the gospel. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Dr. Jones. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you. And I want to give you a little bit of an overview of what we're going to be doing over the next few hours this morning, even including the sermon. I want us to recognize, and I think you probably already do recognize, that the world is changing around us. The world is changing in the sense that you as a Christian, the faith that you hold at one time would have been something that was considered to be socially good. To be a Christian was a social benefit, we might say, and was considered to be something good. Increasingly, we are in a world in which Christianity, in its historic orthodox form, is not considered to be a social good. How do we live in such a setting? One of the things we can do and many people do is just lament and complain about it or react angrily against it. But that's none of that is what was given to us in the example of the early church and of the gospel. We have to be able to engage the world in which God has placed us in a faithful way. And I would say also to do it with joy. See, what a lot of what we sometimes end up doing is we respond in anger when we feel this pressure. And that is not something that is winsome or winning to the world around us. What we want is to be people who can do this and do this with joy. And so I want to talk about different things. The first session, we're going to talk about this notion of deconversion and deconstruction. Then after that, we're going to talk about what are the factors that help a student, a child, hold on to their faith all the way through college. And then we'll be teaching, preaching from Deuteronomy chapter 6 in the worship service. So let's go ahead and jump in and get started in thinking about this. First off, I want to just ask the question. And, and answer what we're talking about when we're talking about deconversion and deconstruction. That's a thing that people are talking a lot about. I want us to make sure we know what it means and doesn't mean. When we talk about deconversion, we are not talking about somebody somehow losing or forfeiting their salvation, okay? That's just a common term that's being used right now for somebody walking away from the faith. And here's what we know and believe as Christians in the Baptist tradition. We know and believe and recognize that if somebody walks away from the faith, it is not because they lost their salvation. It is rather because they never had it to begin with, okay? So I want us to make sure we understand what we don't mean when we talk about deconversion and deconstruction. But these are very common terms. Deconversion being used for people who are walking away from the faith that they once held 
and deconstruction for them kind of taking it apart into pieces and criticizing it. And all it takes is for you to go on TikTok or YouTube or somewhere like that and look up deconversion, deconstruction, exvangelical, or any of those terms like that, and you will find not merely a few dozen, but hundreds upon hundreds and thousands of videos of people who are deconstructing or deconverting, okay? So what may be something you hear about, but I want us to think about how do I respond if somebody says I'm deconstructing, deconverting, how do I respond to that? Because at some point, your students, your children, perhaps your grandchildren, somebody you know, will be saying, hey, I'm deconstructing or I'm deconverting. You need to know what we're talking about when we talk about those terms and how to respond to that. So that's what I want to equip you to do is for you to be able to respond to that. Because let's recognize that the internet, and it's not just that, but that's one of the factors, has brought all the doubts that would have once stayed a long ways away, they brought them to the end of every student's arm, okay? That's what's happened. And so we've got to be able to understand what we're talking about here. And so I want to give you five questions to ask when a student, a child, a young person says they are deconstructing. Here's what I want you to give you. It's just five questions that I want you to ask to be able to let God work through you to draw them back toward the truth of the Christian faith. Here's the number one question. It is simply this. What do you even mean by that? <laughs> What do you mean when you say you're deconstructing especially? What do you mean by that term? And I say to say that because sometimes what you think somebody means is not what they actually mean and is not what they may think they mean, which may not be, mean what you thought it meant at all, okay? So I want us to look at three different ways of defining deconstruction. One of those that I'll spend only a moment on, but you need to understand it, is from a guy named Jacques Derrida. Jacques Derrida, a French philosopher, a postmodern philosopher, is the origin of the concept of deconstruction. Now, probably your eighth grader who says they're deconstructing has never read Jacques Derrida. I've read Jacques Derrida, and I don't really recommend you read Jacques Derrida at all because it's, it's, it's pretty pathetic stuff. But I want you to understand this because his notion is that all words we use, all terminologies we use, everything like that is nothing more or less than merely power against power. And the only way to interpret a text is simply to try to find where the power against power is in that text and to try to deconstruct it. And according to him, there is no real meaning in any text. No text actually has a meaning. It's just a, a power structure that you deconstruct, which I will say this is a little absurd at several different levels because he's saying text has no meaning as he's writing a book to try to convince you of this. I'll let that sit with you for just a moment on that, <laughs> that he's writing this, about telling you this. But I, I want you to understand, because I want you to see that this term deconstruction is not a neutral term, okay? It has a meaning, and it's not something that is compatible with the Christian faith, because we believe a text really can have a real meaning. That's, we have the Bible, and we believe that it's true, and we believe that it has true and authentic meaning. Here's what most students are meaning when they talk about deconstruction, what I call selective deconstruction. And what I mean by selective deconstruction is simply this. 
Selective deconstruction is basically somebody saying, hey, I want to take the parts of the Christian faith that work for me, and I want to leave behind the parts that don't. That's basically what they're talking about right here, selective deconstruction. And we need to help our students understand that the Christian faith stands or falls as a whole, okay? You can't just take the parts you want because here's the thing. Then you are the one who is in the authority. And Jesus said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. The authority is not yours to decide what parts of the faith work for you and don't work and to keep what you want. Yours is to submit to the faith that has been articulated through and by Jesus Christ. So there's another version of this as well. Sometimes I hear students saying, I'm deconstructing, and really what they're doing is simply saying, hey, I'm trying to wrestle through whether I really believe what I've been told. Now, if that's the student, what they're saying, try to challenge them and to say, you know what? You're not really deconstructing, you're reconstructing. And let me help you in that. But the first thing to ask when somebody says, I'm deconstructing, is simply to ask, what do you mean by that? And figure out which one of these they're in. Are they talking about this total deconstruction of language that there is no meaning? Are they trying to take the parts of the faith they want and leave behind the parts they don't? Or are they saying, I want to strengthen my faith by knowing why I believe what I believe, because the way you respond to each one of those is a very different response. So to ask the question, the second question you want to ask is, when did you start feeling this way? Almost always when somebody is going through what they are calling deconstruction or deconversion, something has happened in their life that they are wrestling with and they may have been hurt in some way, they have, may have been wronged in some way, they may have been misunderstood or they may have misunderstood in some way. Something's going on inside them. You better find out what that is. Because if you start arguing for the truth with them, you can speak truth but miss the real anxiety or the real issues with which they're dealing. And it may be that they say, I'm deconstructing because, and they tell you something that happened and what you have to say is, wow, I am really sorry that happened to you. Or you might have to say, God's people really shouldn't act like that and I'm really sorry that that happened to you. When did you start feeling this way? Hear their story and love them and care for them and minister to them. Don't bypass the fact that there's a story that they're wrestling with. When did you start feeling this way? Thirdly, the third question I want you to ask if somebody says, hey, I'm deconstructing, is what are your specific doubts? I've done this many times with students when I've been a student minister, a student pastor, and I, and I said, okay, let's sit down, and I want you to list for me every doubt you have about the Christian faith. Every reason you think it's not true. And you know what I find over and over? That they actually don't have nearly as many doubts as they thought they did. <laughs> they might have three, four, five doubts, and to them in that moment it is feeling overwhelming. But if you sit down and say, here are the specific doubts you have, they realize, wow, they're not that many. And then go from there and say, you know what? Let's together look for answers to the doubts that you have. Here's the doubts. You got five right here, or four, however many ends up on the list. Three, four, five, six doubts. Let's look at each one of these. 
And that helps a student to be able to say, wow, it's not as if I'm doubting everything in the whole world. There's some specific things. And that helps you as well. Because here's what we often want to do as pastors, as youth pastors, as parents. Somebody comes up with a doubt and we get freaked out about it. Oh my goodness. I, I, and we, we, we panic at that moment and respond in ways that aren't wise to real questions that are being asked. Let's talk about the specific doubts you have. Let's put them all in a list. And let's list out all of the questions you have and let's actually attack those one by one. List your doubts. And I want you to understand something that's happened over the past several years. You see, in the past, people didn't usually end up doubting until they got to college. Okay, that was the way it was when I was doing student ministry in the 1990s and the early 2000s. People started doubting once they got to college. That's no longer the way it is. It's more like this now. When students are in middle school and high school, they're already aware of the challenges to the Christian faith. They already have heard these. There's already a little bit of skepticism or at least a little bit of question that they have. And then they get to college and there are intellectual challenges that end up strengthening the skepticism they already have. And then they move to another stage in later college where they abandon Christian ethics and then reinterpret the Bible to fit what they've already decided to believe. And here's the thing. For many years, in the 90s, when I was doing student ministry, as I said, in the early 2000s, what we did in apologetics, that is the defense of the Christian faith, what we did was to argue things from history and science. But here's the thing. History and science aren't where the questions are starting. The questions are starting when it comes to what's right and wrong and good. You see, a previous generation was asking, is the Bible true? The generation now is asking, is God's way good? Those are two different questions. Now, the true question does matter still. That, that's, that question still matters of being able to articulate why the Bible is true. I'm just saying that's not the first doubt people have. People's first doubt is not, is the Bible true? It's, is God's way good? Is it good? Because... The challenge is at the level of, is my creation as male or female good? Is God's way in terms of dealing with my gender, my ethics, my sexuality, all of those things and how I interact with others, is that good? Is it good? People aren't caring as much whether it's true as they are caring whether it is good. Now, I'll give you an example of that. Young woman, 2019, was working with in student ministry. She came to me and we we're talking about it and she said, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but I don't want to become a Christian. That's, that was, I would never have imagined that dilemma in the 1990s of somebody saying, I believe in the resurrection, but I don't want to become a Christian. Well, what was her reason? She said, I'm, I identify as bisexual. I think I may be transgender. Christians won't affirm that. And if Christians won't affirm that, I don't want to become a Christian, even though I find the evidence for the resurrection to be convincing. People aren't caring as much if it's true. They're caring whether they perceive it's good. So what we have to do with somebody like that is to, to help them to understand God's way of a man 
and a woman and God's way of our sexuality being confined to marriage for the, for the good of, well, of all of, of life. That those things are good. <laughs> Male and female is good. It's part of God's beautiful design. And one of the best apologetics things you can do as a parent is for your children to be able to, see, to say, I'm a boy or I'm a girl, and that's good. That's beautiful. For them to rejoice in the gender in which God has created them. The biggest apologetic you can give is your child recognizing my gender, my sexuality is good and beautiful. That will help them to have a more resilient faith than almost anything else. Because the questions have changed now. The next one of these questions I would want you to ask, if you are wrestling with this issue of somebody saying, I'm deconstructing or I'm deconverting, is say, who are you listening to? Get a list of the YouTube videos or the TikTok videos or whatever it may be that they have found convincing. And go watch them. Go watch them. Don't just panic and freak out about that. Actually go watch what they're watching, what they're understanding, what is, is changing their perspective. Go to those and watch them and try to wrestle with and see the questions that are being asked in those. Spend the time doing that. Now, you'll see a lot of bad logic in those. You'll see a lot of appeals to people's emotions over it. There's all sorts of things that you're going to see, but you're also going to see some real places of hurt and struggle that young people are dealing with. Watch that. Spend some time to answer those questions yourself. Who are you listening to? And the fifth question I would want you to ask of somebody who is engaging in this who is deconstructing or deconverting is do you really want to believe <laughs> now i'm saying not saying you shouldn't care about somebody who says no i really don't I'm saying you respond to them very differently there are some people who are saying i'm deconstructing or i'm deconverting and they desperately want to trust jesus and they're looking for good reasons to do so there are some people who are declaring that they say, I really don't want to believe. <laughs> this is a cover for their lack of desire to even trust in Jesus. Love them both, care for them bo both, but deal with them very differently. Because in one case, somebody is, is looking for answers. In the other case, the person has already decided Jesus isn't the answer. And the message that they need is very different. One needs to hear the gospel proclaimed to them for them to understand the claim that God has on their life. The other one needs you to come alongside them and show them how good and beautiful and true the way of God is. Those are different questions that people are asking. Now this really matters to me a lot because as I look back on my life, I remember my first year of college, I did what a lot of people are now calling deconstructing because I was in a situation in a church where nobody ever asked any questions about the Christian faith. And suddenly I signed up for all these classes in ancient history and Greek and, and the religion and all these different things like that. And I signed up for these classes and I suddenly had challenges to my faith that I never had heard before. 
And I started reading. I worked in a library, working my way through college, and I started reading all the books by and about atheism that I could possibly find. And, and I, by the end of the first year, my faith was in broken pieces everywhere. That's all it was. And, and, and I, I didn't know what to do next. And I ran across a book by a guy named C.S. Lewis, which was Surprised by Joy, which is him telling his story of going from atheism to Christianity. And that story of him helped me to see a new vision for what it might be to follow Jesus. And the way I often describe it to people, it's as if I realized over a period of months, my faith is back. <laughs> it's back. And, and the way I've described it is that it's as if those times when you go out for a walk in the dark and it's early morning and at some point you realize the sun has risen but you don't know when it did or how and that's the way it was for me i suddenly i was had been for a walk in the dark and suddenly the sun is back and it was shining again and it was a faith that was stronger than it had ever been before and that's when I made the decision that has brought me all the way to where I'm at right now, which is to say, I want people to know that there is a reason to believe what you believe. And I want to be able to pass that on generation to generation. And the last 30 years of me doing, 30 plus years now actually, um, that I've been doing student ministry, family ministry, and apologetics has all come from me having struggled with my faith, it being in pieces, and God by his grace working through some different things to bring it back together. And I say that because what it gives me confidence in is that there is hope for students who are deconstructing and saying they're deconverting. Don't give up. <laughs> Don't withdraw from them. Engage with them. Love them. Care for them. I've been through that road. And I can tell you that you can come out on the other side with a stronger faith than you ever had before. A stronger faith. One last thing I want to, to just put in front of you, just a couple of last ideas. If you're actually dealing with somebody who's wrestling with some of this, consider working together to create content with them. Help the student to create content to respond to the doubts they have. That's something I found, and I've worked with some churches to do this, where they set up their own YouTube channel that was monitored by the, the, the student minister, and they've set up where students are actually helping one another by giving answers to the questions themselves. And in all of this, what I want to say is make a place and a plan for the prodigal. Here's what I believe. Maybe I'm too optimistic, but here's what I believe. We are going to be having in the next 10 to 20 years a lot of people who are going to be coming back to the faith, mangled, broken, mutilated, and, and, are, and, and struggling with what does it even mean to follow Jesus now. I think we've got people coming back, and here's why. All the world's ideologies and the world's claims about gender and about all the things that are putting pressure on us, they don't work. They just don't work. They aren't going to bring people to lasting peace and joy. And you know what that means? Eventually, people are going to give up on it. And yes, there will be new challenges and new temptations on the other side of that. I'm fully aware of that. But there are going to be people who are coming back. 
because the way that they're living isn't working for them. We already see that in the statistics of the mental health of a lot of students who are in these different circles, things like this. It's not bringing them joy. And we, if we can be people who show that this is a place of joy here, this is a place where life in Christ can be, yes, it's hard, but we can be resilient and joyful people in that life. That will bring people by God's work, God's grace, God's power, that will bring people back. And so don't despair. Make a place and a space for the prodigal because they will one day, many of them, be coming home. They will. Let's pray. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon. 